Good afternoon. It is good. As always, it is so good to worship together with you. If you can come back in and find your seats. My name is Tim Owens. I am one of the pastors here at Sovereign Grace. And just last week, we started a new sermon series on Psalm 119. And we plan to spend all summer, all summer, about 12 Sundays in this one unique chapter of the Bible. Just as a quick recap from Ron's introductory message last week, Psalm 119, as many of you know, is the longest chapter in the Bible. It is skillfully written. It's an acrostic poem. So there are 22 stanzas in Psalm 119, and each stanza corresponds to one of the 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. The major theme of Psalm 119 is God's word. Don't you stop and think about that for a second. The longest chapter in God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word is a poem about the significance of God's word. I think God's trying to get our attention with this. As Ron mentioned last week, Psalm 119, it's not primarily didactic. It's not a lecture. No, in fact, only four verses are written in third person. The other 172 verses of Psalm 119 are intensely personal. You see, Psalm 119 is a prayer. It's a prayer. It's a conversation between the psalmist and God in which the psalmist is going to connect the, the mighty, the powerful, the transcendent word of God to every single area of his heart and life. And as you read through it, what we're going to realize is that the writer of the psalm, this is not, this is not a spiritual all-star. This is a normal person like you and me. You, you begin to read through the verses and stanzas of Psalm 19, and you're going to see that this person has joy and pain in his life. He struggles with, he, he moves between obedience and failure, weakness and frustration, but there is something unique about the writer's heart and life, and it's this. He has come to a passionate love of every aspect of God's word, and he sees how God's word works into every corner of his life, and he can help us with that. Now, typically at Sovereign Grace Church, we preach through chapters and verses sequentially, uh, but with Psalm 119, we don't have 22 weeks to dedicate to this sermon series. And so we're going to be jumping around a little bit. And we're going to try to hit the stanzas that bear more of the weight and capture more of the major themes of this interesting chapter of Scripture. And so today, we're going to be in the 12th stanza. That is Psalm 119, verses 89 to 96. So if you can turn in your Bible or use your smart device, please join me. We're going to read Psalm 119, starting in verse 89. We'll read this together, and then we'll pray and begin. Psalm 119, 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth, and it stands fast. By your appointment they stand this day, for all things are your servants. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. I am yours. Save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked lie in wait 
to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. Pray with me. Father, we are grateful for this opportunity to come and meditate together on your word. Lord, we ask that you would do for us what you have so clearly done for the writer of this psalm, that you would work your word into every corner of our heart and life. Lord, prepare the way for your word this afternoon. Soften our hearts, open our ears, open our eyes that we might see the wonderful things you have for us in your law today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have you ever wondered what would happen if the sun were to disappear? If it disappeared right now? I was thinking recently about the solar system, and I was trying to remember all of the ways the solar system is dependent on the sun. I I heard in school years and years ago that virtually everything, the conditions for life are dependent on the sun. And I was trying to remember what are the physical laws that make that up. And so I thought that the best way to find an answer would be to study what would happen if we lost the sun, if it just disappeared. And the answers are, are pretty fascinating, actually. Let me tell you what I learned. Now, first, and most obviously, our solar system is dependent on the gravity of the sun for its shape and for the way that it moves. The gravity of the sun controls all of that. So the first thing that would happen if we lost the sun is that our solar system would scatter into the Milky Way galaxy. Now this would happen at different rates and times because of Einstein's theory of general relativity, which tells us that gravity propagates at the speed of light which is just a fancy word for gravity moves at the speed of light. And so that means that we would begin to feel the effects. We would lose the gravity and light of the sun at exactly the same moment, eight minutes and 20 seconds after the sun disappeared. So we would actually have light and gravity and everything would continue normally for eight minutes and 20 seconds after the sun had actually ceased to exist. What's what's even more interesting is that because gravity and light move, they take some time to get to where they're going, we on Earth would continue to see the sunlight reflecting off Jupiter for 30 more minutes after we lost the light of the sun. 30 more minutes. The sun doesn't exist anymore, and we would still see its light reflecting off Jupiter. Now, eight minutes and 20 seconds after the sun disappeared, we would lose light, and so naturally photosynthesis would completely stop. Most plants would die within days, some maybe a matter of weeks. Uh, Interestingly, interestingly, trees have enough sugar content in their wood that they would actually survive until they froze solid. The average temperature on Earth right now is in the mid-50s. It's about 56 degrees Within the first seven days of the sun disappearing, that would drop to about 32 degrees Fahrenheit. So, okay, all right, that's cold for us Southern Californians, but we're still, we're still making it. Within the first year, though, the average temperature would drop to negative 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Now we're in trouble. Now this is probably the most interesting thing that I learned. Within the first couple of years, the air in the Earth's atmosphere would actually uh, liquefy into first a form of rain, and then as it got colder, the oxygen would turn into a form of snow, and the oxygen would fall as snow all over the Earth in a fairly thick layer. So there are actually sci-fi books and shows that, that depict someone kind of coming out of their house with a bucket to gather the oxygen snow and go back in and set it on the fire so they can keep breathing because the oxygen has all frozen into snow. Most of mankind would die within the first 12 months. Uh, You know, for the first several months, fossil fuels and electricity would continue to work, but that would begin to break down. 
Um, it's possible that some small groups of humans could continue to survive longer uh, using a combination of nuclear power and also congregating around those places on the Earth's crust that have higher than normal geothermal activity. But ultimately, all human life would cease fairly, fairly quickly. It's difficult to overstate our degree of dependence on the sun for sustaining life as we know it. Uh, it, it. The basic building blocks, the elemental conditions that we need in order to survive, the sun provides those for us. But in our text today, the psalmist is going to begin, just like me thinking about the solar system, the psalmist is going to begin by thinking about the solar system. But in eight really short verses, the writer is going to move from the massive scope of the solar system all the way to the most intimate details of his life. And he, he sees something. He uncovers something here that has the ability to give you and me more stability, more peace, more freedom than we can ever hope to achieve on our own. Because he sees something that's more fundamental than the sun. More fundamental than our solar system's dependent, dependence on the sun's light and heat and gravity. And that's the dependence of all things on the mighty word of God. If we had to summarize our text today, we could say it this way. God's word gives life and freedom. God's word is the source of life and freedom. It, it, it has the power to give it, to create it, and also to sustain it. God's word gives life and freedom regardless of what we might bring to the table, regardless of what experiences we've had, what ideas we have about where life and freedom come from. The Bible, Psalm 119, stands at 12, says that the actual origin of those things is the mighty word of God. And for men and women who are created in God's image, physical life is not the only thing in view in this stanza. Biological life, there's, there's so much more than physical biological life. The, the psalmist is going to speak of a quality of life that we can only achieve when we're walking in harmony with God's word. Our text gives us three simple points today. One, point number one, the nature of God's word. That's verses 89 to 91. Point number two, true life, verses 92 to 94. And point number three, true freedom, verses 95 and 96. Let's jump right into point number one, the nature of God's word. The flow of this stanza in Psalm 119 is the first three verses open up a massive view of the nature and scope and power of God's word. And then the remaining verses in the stanza, the psalmist is going to apply those massive truths to his life and hopefully to our life as well. So let's take it one verse at a time. Look with me at verse 89. We could spend the rest of our time today on verse 89 alone. Let's look at verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. The first characteristic of God's word that the writer draws our attention to is eternal security. The word of God, he says, is firmly fixed forever, it's permanent, it's stable. We have to step back from a verse like this. I believe that most of us, myself included, bring a deep-seated skepticism that prevent verses like this in the Bible from having their intended effect on our soul. This verse is so contrary to our life experience. The only constant thing in our lives has been change. 
From the, from the first day that you were born, you began develop, developing coping mechanisms and self-protection mechanisms so that you can deal with the instability and unpredictability of life on this planet. Nothing in your experience is permanently stable. Can you even conceive of such an idea? Something that is permanently stable? The things that you and I typically look to, that we invest our hope in for security and stability, things like family, friends, money, even our own abilities, our health, deep down, we know that these things are very fragile. They are all too easy to lose. But friends, receive this. The word of God is not like that. The word of God is beyond the reach of the chaos of this world. Isn't that the thrust of verse number one? Here, verse 89, the first verse in our text today. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed. Where? In the heavens. It's beyond the reach of the chaos and uncertainty and instability of this world. It is fixed in the heavens. It is not subject to entropy or corruption. It's firmly fixed forever. The psalmist is saying that God's word has a power that nothing else on this earth has. It has the power to give you a kind of peace and security that you will never know apart from it. And what's more, the word of God is active. So eternal security is present here. In verse 89, but hidden in verse 89, hidden, hidden in this, this phrase, firmly fixed. If you look back at verse 89, the English phrase is firmly fixed, but that's translating one Hebrew word. And that Hebrew word means on duty, like a soldier. Other places in scripture that use this word, it's talking about a soldier being stationed. The word, of, the word of God is not like a statue in the heavens that's just recording all of God's words for posterity. It's not some sort of cosmic database. It's not just up there written somewhere. No, no, no. The word of God is actively on guard. It, it is the active power ruling and reigning over the universe. It's stationed in the heavens. It's on guard in the heavens. So we're only 11 verses into our text today. But in this short sentence, the psalmist has already given us something unlike anything else we can find on this earth. God's word is eternally secure and actively governing the universe. Now let's look at verse 90. Your faithfulness endures To all generations, you have established the earth and it stands fast. As Ron mentioned last week, the psalmist continually uses eight synonyms for God's word. And they can be used interchangeably, but we do well to pay attention to the nuance of those synonyms. They each get at a different aspect of God's powerful and mighty word. Nearly every verse in the psalm, there's 176 verses in Psalm 119, All but four of those verses contain one of those eight synonyms. Now, think back to the introduction. This is a very uh, structurally planned out piece of writing, is it not? It's an alphabetic acrostic poem. Okay, so it's highly unlikely that the psalmist just like, it skipped his mind in four out of the 176 verses not to include one of those synonyms. So what we need to do when we see one of those four verses is we need to know this is, this is interpretively important because it's clear that the writer wanted to say something about God's word in every single verse. So when we don't see one of those eight synonyms, he must be bringing in a new word that captures something that the other eight words don't capture for us. It's going to give us a new angle on God's word. So let's, let's read really carefully verse 90 one more time. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. The writer, instead of using rules or statutes or law, or testimonies, or word. The writer chose the word faithfulness. 
the first thing to observe here is that this is an attribute of God. He chose an attribute of God. God is faithful. So what is he saying? Every other verse includes a reference to God's word. Verse 90 includes a reference to God's character. So the first thing we need to understand is that God's word flows directly out of his character. It is a part of who he is. It's not arbitrary. You see, we have to emphasize this because we are humans and we have the ability to misconstrue the facts. We have the ability to lie. We have the ability to think one thing and have another thing come out of our mouth. So for us, there is often a gap between our words and what's really going on inside of us. But God is not like that, my friends. It's so important that we understand this. This is one of the key ways the Bible distinguishes God from us. God is not a man that he should lie. He can't do it. When God speaks, his words perfectly capture the essence of who he is. It comes right out of his character. The second thing we need to see is that communication itself flows out of God's character. So follow me here. God isn't using words because he knows that us weak humans need to have something we can understand. He he didn't begrudgingly create the universe and uphold it by the power of his word because he thought, well, these creatures I created, they just have to be able to, you know, I have to put it in some language they can understand. No, 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 it's quite the opposite. Humans use words to communicate because God is a communicating God and humans are made in his image. So words are much more important than we might know. God is communicative by nature. So he's chosen to accomplish things through words. Secondly, notice the attribute that the psalmist picks. It's faithfulness. Faithfulness. God's faithfulness appears 41 times in the book of Psalms. And almost every time, not every time, but almost every time faithfulness appears in the book of Psalms, it appears right next to another attribute of God. And that is his steadfast love. Faithfulness and steadfast love, those are relational words. Those are covenant-keeping words. So we're, we're not face-to-face with an impersonal, perfect standard. That's not what the word of God is only. It is that, but it is much more than that. The psalmist chose the word faithful, and that represents God's complete dedication to keep his promises to his people. We might summarize verses 89 and 90 this way. God's word is eternally secure. It is active and it is faithful and it is fundamentally responsible for establishing and sustaining the universe. And that is exactly the conclusion we see in verse 91. Read it with me. By your appointment, they stand this day. What is they? What stands this day by God's appointment? Well, that is the heavens, the earth, uh, all the generations of mankind. Everything that happened in verses 89 and 90 They stand by God's appointment for, and this is a big one, all things are your servants. All things are your servants. By your appointment, everything stands. All things are your servants. Appointment is one of our eight synonyms for word, and it means judgments, decrees, directives. Commentator Alec Matir interprets verse 91 this way. The cosmos is not self-governing or self-perpetuating, nor are its regularities simply those of a well-integrated machine. Everything depends all the time on Yahweh's decision that it should be so. This is very good news. Friends, the universe is not a lawless place. It's not a result of random chance. It's not a result of some deistic God who set up a fancy machine and then went on vacation for all of eternity while it kept ticking along through the solar system. No, the universe is actively governed by the inexorable word of a faithful personal God who is not indifferent to his creatures. 
God, by his word, right this moment, is keeping the conditions going that allow you and I to be breathing in this room. This very moment, God, by his active decrees, is upholding the earth, every condition for life, the air we breathe right now. If anything, my opening illustration about the sun and the solar system just drastically undersells the truth. It falls so far short. The question isn't what if the sun disappears? The much more significant question is what if I disobey or reject that word? The word that is holding the heavens in place. The word that's upholding the conditions for all of life as we speak. What if I reject that word? The sun itself is being sustained by a word. Gravity is predictable and measurable because of a steady, trustworthy word. All of life is dependent on that word. And the rest of this stanza shows us that the psalmist, he is not scared to apply this truth all the way down. He really gets it. If all life is dependent on that word, then my life is dependent on that word. That brings us to point number two, true life. Let's look at verses 92 and 93. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. Now, the first thing to note here, follow along carefully, is that the synonyms have changed again. The words that the writer is using to refer to the word of God, they've changed. In verses 89 through 91, the writer was talking about the cosmic word that's upholding the universe. But in verses 92 and 93, he starts talking about the law. That's Hebrew Torah and precepts. In verse 93, the law and the precepts. This is incredibly significant for us. These two new words, they refer to the written word of God. God's word that was specifically spoken to mankind. The psalmist is now talking about a physical book. It used to be the word that's upholding the cosmos. Now the psalmist is talking about a book. He's talking about his Bible. And commentator Derek Kidner puts it very well. A striking feature of this stanza is the coupling, so the bringing together of God's creative world-sustaining word with his law for man. Both are the product of the same ordering mind. Folks, the psalmist is saying that this, that you can hold in your hand right now and read at your leisure, this Bible has the same authority and life-giving power as the divine word that's holding the earth uh, on its axis and in its orbit right at this moment. Same. Same. Think of the implications of that. If that's true, then rejecting the written word of God is like, it's like rejecting gravity or deciding you want to reject oxygen. If the word that upholds the universe and the written words share the same attributes, then the moral law of scripture is as fundamental to human life as the physical laws that govern the universe. And the psalmist sees it. He sees the full implications because he says here in verse 92, I would have died. If I hadn't loved your word, I would have died. This is literally true. If you reject the word that creates the conditions for you to live, you will die. But the emphasis here in this stanza is not on the consequences of rejecting God's word, but rather it's on the benefits of cherishing it. Look at verse 92. If your law had not been my what? My, my delight. Oh, praise the Lord for this word. Delight. Folks, God is not after a mechanical, heartless, legalistic conformity. That's not what he wants from us. He's after our hearts. 
this verse suggests that God's law is not just morally correct, but it's also delightful. If we give ourselves to learning and obeying it, then we'll discover something. We'll discover joy. And this delight, look at the quality of this delight. It's not fleeting or fragile, but we know that it isn't because it's created by the eternally secure word of God. So this must be an unusually secure and durable delight. But the psalmist tells us that it is because he's experiencing delight where? Look at verse, the end of verse 92. I would have perished in my affliction. The writer is experiencing a kind of delight that can survive in the midst of affliction. God's written word, like his cosmic world-sustaining word, is permanent and stable, and it provides a permanent and stable delight. Look at verse 93. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. So not only is God's word capable of giving us an unusual delight that can't be shaken by circumstances, but God's precepts give us life. Now, what does that mean? The Hebrew word here means cause me to live or revive me. And we know that that mere biological life is not in view because the psalmist is alive. He's biologically alive when he's writing this. So he's talking about something else. He's talking about a quality of life. He's talking about something that every single one of us have experienced. When you walk through your day and you realize, I'm not fully here. Something is off. I am not living abundant life right now. I am not fully engaged with the world right now. Something is dead inside of me. I need to be revived. I need to be stirred up. I need to be brought to life. And this is one of the most frequent prayers in Psalm 119. Lord, revive me. Give me life. Give me life so that I can obey your laws. And here, when I obey obey your laws, when I love your precepts, then I receive life. God's word has the power to give you a different kind of life, a new quality of life of life. In the New Testament, Jesus is going to call it abundant life. In the midst of obvious difficulties and trials, he says he is in affliction. The psalmist says God's word has a message that can unlock a kind of delight and a kind of quality of life for which the afflictions of this world cannot destroy. Can you think of something more valuable than that? Don't you long for the kind of emotional stability that's steady in the midst of trial? Could you put a price tag on something that would give you joy and delight no matter what you're facing in this life? What about something that has the power to revive you, to restore vitality and energy and ability to move through this life fully awake and fully engaged? But how do we get that? How does that come to us? The psalmist has an answer for us. Let's look together at verse 94. In some ways, the most important verse in this text. I am yours. Save me. For I have sought your precepts. This verse has layers to it, brothers and sisters. First, if, if the beginning of this stanza is true, if God's word really is governing all of life and governing all the universe, then it is just literally true that we belong to him. We are his, whether we want to say it out loud or not. But there's an emotional component to this. When you confess that you belong to someone, those are words that we typically associate with marriage. This is a, an intensely personal confession of utter dependence upon God. I am yours. Save me. David Powelson has this to say about verse 94. In a culture of instant access and instant information, this psalm rewards the slow. If you speed read Psalm 119, all you'll get is Psalm 119 is about the Bible. But if you take it slow and live it out, you find yourself saying things like this. I am I'm yours. Learning to say that out loud and mean it will change your life forever. Psalm 119 is not information about the Bible. 
It's speech therapy for the inarticulate. Friends, this is not the prayer of a self-righteous man. This is a humble cry for help, a confession of dependence. This psalmist knows that there is no hope for him when he is faced with the mighty, inexorable, unyielding, forever, eternal word of God. He realizes very quickly, I need a savior. I belong to you, God. Oh, please save me. The writer of this psalm He knows that he's broken the law and that he deserves to die. But somehow he has found the confidence to ask the Lord for salvation, even though he violated the eternal word. He's seen something in God's law that gives him a sense of comfort and peace, despite the fact that he knows he falls short. Even enough comfort and peace to walk through affliction What he's seen is that the very law that condemns him also makes him a promise. It promises a savior. The one who speaks the eternal word is also the one who saves. This is good news, church family. The one who speaks the eternal word that's holding the earth in its orbit right now is also the one who saves. He's also the one who came to live, to to be born into a manger and to live in this broken world and to die on a cross. Do you know what happens? The longer I meditate on Psalm 119, I begin to see and hear Jesus. See if you can hear him too. Verse 89 says that God's word is firmly fixed forever. In Matthew 24, 35, Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but what? My word will never pass pass away. Verses 90 and 91 say that God's word established and maintains the universe. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 tells us exactly whose responsibility it is to wield that awesome power. It says this, he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds all things by what? By the word of his power. Jesus is the one upholding the universe. Verses 92 and 93 says that God's word, it's a matter of life and death for us. And in John 6, 63, Jesus says this, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no hope at all, no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you, they are spirit and life. The words. God used his word to create the physical universe God uses his word to recreate us, giving us new spiritual life, to bring us to life spiritually. Jesus is the word made flesh. Jesus holds the universe together by the word of his power. Jesus is the one who can give abundant life in the midst of all kinds of trials and temptations. And Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. When the inspired psalmist thousands of years ago wrote, I am yours, save me. This psalmist was looking forward to the cross and we sitting here must look back to it if we're ever gonna sing Psalm 119. If we are ever gonna rejoice in this word. Jesus perfectly obeyed the written word of God. And in his death on the cross, he paid the penalty that we deserved for all the ways that we have broken it. By faith in him, we can be released from the penalty of the law and set free to experience the beauty of it. You see, outside of Christ, the law is beautiful and terrible. I've said this before, but it bears repeating. But in Christ, the terror, the condemnation of the law goes away and only the beauty remains. As we begin to trust that Jesus really took all the consequences that I deserve, that Jesus knows every dark corner of my heart and still loved me enough to go to the cross for me, that will unlock a kind of freedom that we cannot find apart from Christ, that we cannot know if all we have is the things of this world. And that brings us to our final point, true freedom. Verses 95 and 96. Let's look at verse 95 together. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me. Okay, this is a bad situation. Okay, some of us have had the experience of having enemies. I hope you haven't, but I know that it happens. We're in a fallen and broken world. 
this man has enemies and they are lying in wait to destroy him. He's in a very dangerous situation. He's in a situation that most of us would be tempted to intense anxiety. If you knew that your life was legitimately in danger, that there was someone who seriously was out to destroy you, you would be tempted to intense anxiety. You would be tempted to obsess over ways to protect yourself. I would. What is this man doing? The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I go to the store and buy a gun. No. But I wasn't able to sleep all night last night. I was just lying in my bed worrying and sweating and just hoping that I, that I don't die tomorrow. No, that's not what he's doing. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. What? He's in physical danger and he's meditating on God's word? He's, he's not dominated by anxiety? How is that possible? What can give him this kind of peace and poise in a dangerous situation? Well, it's actually just that he really has come to believe what he just wrote in the first three verses of this stanza. That God's word governs all things. In the midst of danger, this man is giving his attention to the thing that is actually in control of all things. The only thing in the universe that has the power over his enemies. He knows he doesn't have the power. He knows he is out of control. And he is giving his mind, his whole heart, his whole attention to the thing that governs the universe. By your appointment, the earth and the generations stand fast to this day, all things, Lord, are your servants, including my enemies. And as he gives his, his attention to the thing that truly has the power to deliver, something miraculous happens. He is set free from one of the most pervasive and damaging aspects of human life after the fall. He's been set free from fear. He's not afraid. He's meditating on God's word. My friends, in Christ, if you are in Christ today, you are connected to the eternally secure word of God. The eternally secure word of God. Even physical death cannot separate you from him. Death has lost its sting for you if you can believe it. Even, his, even if the psalmist's enemies kill him, they cannot actually harm him. They can't even take away his real life. They can't shake his joy because he's eternally secure. When we are in physical danger, this is what Psalm 119 says to us. Lift up your eyes, my child. Far above the turmoil of this world, I am governing all things for my glory and your good. That's what the psalmist says to us when we're afraid. Now let's look at verse 96. I love this verse. If verse 95 sets us free from the chains, the, the prison of fear, verse 96 is going to turn us around from that dungeon and show us the, 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 the largest, beautiful green field you can imagine. Verse 96 is going to define for us what is freedom. You were chained by fear, and now you've been set free. But now, what does it mean to be truly free? Verse 96, read it with me. I have seen a limit to all perfection. Perfection is really an unhappy translation for this word. It's a very tricky word to translate. The Hebrew word means something like the, of everything that has an end. Okay, uh, or it could be translated like this. I have seen a limit to all that is finite. Okay, this is an idea that I associate with Ecclesiastes. Everything under the sun is finite. There's a time, there's a season for everything, but all is passing away. All is vanity. So the psalmist is saying, I have seen a limit to everything that I can see in this material world. It's limiting. It infringes upon my freedom. So he's setting up a contrast. He's saying everything in this world is limited, and I'm about to tell you what is not limited. 
I'm going to show you where true freedom is. Let's read it. I'm excited. Your commandment. What? What? Is that the first word that came to your mind? When I said the, the key to true freedom. The key to true freedom. And note, he changed, he changed synonyms again. Now he's not talking about the whole law. Now he's not talking about the precepts. Now he's not talking about the cosmic governing word of God that's up above, firmly fixed in the heavens. It's a singular. It's singular in Hebrew. Your commandment, your commandment is exceedingly broad. Your commandment. Everything infringes on our liberty. Everything boxes you in. Everything. It makes you feel like you can't truly be the person you're designed to be. It puts parameters on you. Okay? Where does our liberty lie? In God's commandments. This is so counterintuitive to us. Don't the commandments restrict our liberty? Don't the commandments tell me who I have to be? But this psalmist, he has seen the key. He sees something totally different. He's following along the logic from verse 89, 90, 91. He's saying, if God's word upholds the very universe, if there is really nothing that exists outside the scope of God's word, and if this word shares the same attributes with the word that holds the universe together, then the commandments They are part of the fabric of life itself. There could be nothing more broad than the command of God. You will never, mark my words, you will never find more scope for the person that God has made you to be than when you are walking in his ways. You are not getting this message from the culture around you. The world around you is zealous for you not to believe this. Every commercial, every movie, every news article, the zeitgeist of the world says that you can only be your best self if you pick and choose what commandments to obey. Better yet, if you write your own commandments, if you decide this is is who I want to be, No, no, you will never find more scope. The universe, there's nothing. There's nothing outside the realm of God's word. You will never find more scope for the person God has made you to be than when you walk in his ways. The boundaries that God's word sets for us mark out the broadest and richest life that is possible for humankind. As one commentator put it, where God is master, service is perfect freedom. Let's have the worship team come on up. I believe that there are at least three ways that we must apply this text to our lives today. And I want to start this way. First, for those of you who may not have put your faith in Christ, please Please hear the warning and the invitation of this text. The warning and the invitation. If that's you, if you cannot honestly say that you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, there is a warning in this text for you. You cannot defeat the Word of God. It will be the final word of human history. It is eternal. It is firmly fixed. If you reject that word, if you're walking in open rebellion against that word, against this word, then you are living on borrowed time. You're alive today, even though you're walking contrary to the eternal word of God, you are alive because of the gentle patience of our God. He does not wish for any to perish. And today there is an opportunity to be reconciled to him through faith in Jesus Christ. I I invite you, I implore you 
to pray the prayer of Psalm 119 and verse 94. I am yours, Lord. Save me. Jesus came to pay the penalty for your sins so that that prayer can be answered. Second, for those of us who are fearful or anxious, Psalm 119, 89 to 96, this stanza is uniquely for you. Do you feel it? This stanza is for you. It it offers us something unshakable, something steady and, and secure in the midst of a fragile and dangerous world. Psalm 119, it doesn't sugarcoat the world we live in. This man had enemies who were trying to destroy him. He was walking through afflictions, but he found peace right in the middle of that. If you struggle with anxiety, this stanza is for you. Would you go back to it over the next couple of weeks? Would you take it line by line? Would you memorize it until your eyes come up off of the unpredictable things of this world to the firmly fixed, eternally secure word of God? Finally, a word on sanctification. I want you to notice this, the psalmist, the writer of this stanza, he knows that he needs a savior. He knows that he can't perfectly keep the word of God. He cries out for salvation, but that does not cause him to become nonchalant or neglectful about God's commands. It does just the opposite. When we come to Christ, Christ takes away the condemnation of the law and he sends us back to the law, free of condemnation and now full of the Holy Spirit so we can grow in true life. There is no true life or true freedom apart from the commandment. Some of us may have known our Savior for years, for decades, but we have all but given up hope of growing in holiness. There's that habit. There's that personality trait. There's that persistent sin. And if you're honest with yourself right now, and I encourage you to be, you realize you have, you have put down the gloves You're not fighting it anymore. That is not the fruit of the gospel. Our Savior sets us free from the condemnation so that we can grow, so that we can grow in the path of true life. Hear the invitation of Psalm 119. Hear the invitation of Psalm 119. If there are an area of your life, if if this third point of application is striking a chord with you today, then today is a good day to confess. Not tomorrow, not the next day, not next week. Today is a good day to confess, and that's all it takes, brothers and sisters. Come back to your Savior. I have neglected your word, Father. Please forgive me. Fill me with your spirit to walk in your ways again. That's all that it takes. You don't have to perform. You don't have to get your life together. You don't have to have five days where you don't commit that sin before you can reapproach your Savior. Today is a good day to confess. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your word today. We need this. We want this kind of stability, poise. We want a kind of delight and joy that that stays with us in the midst of trial and affliction. We want to be set free from anxiety and fear. We want to know what abundant life is. Please send your spirit. Apply your word to each heart and revive us today. In Jesus' name, amen.